0: Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Shiv.
1: I'm Sam, and today we are thrilled to have Dr. Anna Lau with us. Dr. Lau is a child clinical psychologist and professor of psychology at the University of California, Los Angeles. She is also the principal investigator at the UCLA Culture and Minority Mental Health Lab. Her research includes exploring the areas of disparities in children's mental health services, cultural variation in risk and protective factors for child psychopathology, and community implementation of evidence-based practices. Another major effort involves understanding driving factors that promote the use of evidence-based practices within community mental health
0: clinics. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Lau. To start, we'd like to ask our guests to talk about an inflection point, a place where they had to pivot or adjust in their career or personal lives. Can you share a moment with us?
2: Sure, well, thank you so much for having me here. a really interesting question, uh, and I think I will focus on um, a pivot that I made in my research, actually, and uh, the research I'm talking about today is really focused on you know, how do we get community mental health professionals to adopt research-based interventions, and that reflects a pivot <laughs> um, from some earlier research um, that I was uh, working on. And, um, my research I've been really lucky to be funded by the National Institute of Mental Health and they have sort of a trajectory that some scientists follow in terms of um, uh, providing funding for their research and to sort of seed um, uh, from from an initial idea to a sort of a bigger idea and kind of a definitive test of that idea. And so earlier in my career I was really lucky to get something called a Career Development Award. Um, this is uh, support for you as a scholar uh, in your time, but then also to kind of uh, develop a new skill set to, to approach a new area of research. And um, after graduate school, I really wanted to become a treatment effectiveness researcher. So, really, to um, design and adapt treatments for a population that you know i was really invested in a very underserved understudied population of asian american uh, families and children and so i was um, supported to develop skills and intervention and i really wanted to know do these uh, treatments that we have uh, evidence of effectiveness with middle class white families? Can we really rely on them to deliver the same results with diverse families like Asian American families? And so I, at that point, undertook research to, to really look at that. Do these treatments generalize? And if not, how do we adapt them to make them effective for diverse families? And I was on kind of that track and then testing ways of adapting interventions. So how maybe the problem is that they're not acceptable you know, to families from minority backgrounds that have different ideas of parenting, different ideas of children's behavior. Uh, and so I was on that track for a while, uh, did a study um, testing a way to adapt those treatments for Chinese immigrant families. And then when I got to that end of that study, the plan was, okay, now we're going to do a big test and we're going to really test be systematic and test different ways of making those treatments work for diverse families to find that five years later, kind of the field has shifted and it really wasn't thought to be a fruitful use of research funding to kind of tinker around with treatments for all these different groups right? Because then it's like, what are you going to do? You're going to do a study for Chinese immigrant families, and then you have to do Korean families. And so kind of the thinking about, you know, what was an important priority for serving diverse families kind of shifted, and it wasn't these sort of laboratory testing of small modifications. So that was kind of a bummer. (laughs) But it turns out, you know, I think that was right. That's not a really efficient kind of way of moving the science forward, these sort of group by group tests of things. So um, at that point, I started getting interested in a new kind of area, which was, uh, which has now come to be called implementation science. And this is really about how do we move innovations from research? So it could be a treatment. uh, How do we make sure that people in the community actually use that treatment? Um, and there's a, there's a sort of adage that it takes about 17 years for about 14% of science to actually affect some practice in the real world. And so I thought, gosh, maybe I could situate my question about why isn't it that, um, how can we make sure that diverse families get research-based treatments so maybe not by testing in the laboratory, like different ways of modifying them, but really testing at a bigger level, understanding, you know, if I have community providers out there actually treating large numbers of Asian American families, how can we make sure that we um, are moving in our most effective, most promising treatments into those settings? So I, the pivot was from sort of more laboratory-based treatment research to, okay, let me understand what it takes for community therapists to make those same treatments work, not what sort of I say in the laboratory uh, works better.
1: Um, so definitely a big focus of your work is, is um, research within Asian American communities. Mm-hmm. And um, I found even personally, my mom grew up in Japan and with her side of the family, there's definitely a stigma attached towards mm-hmm. mental health and psychology. Um, and I was wondering how how that kind of theme has come up within your work, and like whether that leads to, I mean, within my family, there's they've definitely been reluctant to either seek help mm-hmm. or um, or get help. And I was wondering how that kind of affects um, your work.
2: Another really important question, and mental health stigma is pervasive, right? It's um, across cultural groups and racial ethnic groups, um, and it really is a major barrier to getting people the help they need, so this is really important. I agree with you um, that there are some ethnocultural groups for whom we're even more concerned, right, that this is a barrier, and I think Asian American p- communities um, are numbered among uh, those groups, so um, yeah, we... It's kind of connecting back up to doing treatment research when you do treatment research you really already have those people in the room that are saying hey I need treatment so it's kind of farther down the road than really the work that needs to be done right to like destigmatize mental health services and make sure that all the people that need it are not being kept out because of their concerns about being othered or stigmatized or uh, seeing and somehow broken or less than. So um, that requires a whole different kind of focus. Um, And so we think about with children's mental health, how do you make it so that treatment is acceptable, that it, happens to be where children are and that you can decrease the stigma barriers as much as possible. So um, uh, it does happen that the majority of mental health services for kids these days happens in schools. So you know we really think school-based mental health has a lot of potential right for knocking down barriers, cost, location, um, knowledge right about where to get care. Um, and it's kind of a question about how much it destigmatizes mental health treatment to have it in schools. I think there's a potential for that, but I think it's not everything. Um, so we've been doing a lot more prevention work, and prevention work is more. Uh, often more bringing interventions to kids at varying levels of risk, sometimes no risk with universal prevention. And that should be the least stigmatizing, right? Because all the ninth graders are getting mindfulness intervention, for example, um, versus where, you know, you're screening to detect who's at risk and then offering care there. So that's one of the ways we've tried to tackle it is how can we use sort of social marketing Principals in schools to um, get people who otherwise might be very wary about mental health treatment to see it as relevant to them, to see it as important to outcomes that they care about. So, for parents, you want your kids to do well in school, Um, you want them to be, you know, uh, cooperative at home. And so, what are the kind of levers to getting these mental health interventions seem relevant to people? So it's really a lot about listening to communities and finding what are those entry points and how can you describe mental health treatment in ways that are consistent with our goals and less stigmatizing. So, you know, I've been really lucky to have really progressive school district partners in that work. So a lot of that work in the greater LA area, in the San Gabriel Valley with high proportions of Asian American families uh, to do that kind of work.
0: Yeah, in a, in a similar vein, so you focus a lot of your work, like you mentioned, on children, but also the Asian-American communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, beyond stigma, what are what were the disparities and deficiencies that you saw in clinical psychology that sometimes lead people to focus on making sure that these diverse populations um, are served? What, are, what were yeah. some of the underlying problems? Uh,
2: the problems in terms of maybe missing um, kind of missing the boat on uh, uh, the needs of Asian Americans um, you know I think I think some of it is who is doing the research <laughs> uh, and I think a lot of where we see, Uh, reductions in, you know, or attention to disparities, whatever it is, educational disparities, mental health disparities, health disparities, it's often driven by having people in that, you know, uh, workforce, either on the ground delivering care or, you know, going after research money to study these problems. Um, So really, I think that a lot of it is a pipeline issue and making sure that we have people who are kind of passionate about underserved communities leading efforts, whether it's science efforts or practice efforts, uh, to make sure these needs that are invisible in some communities, making them visible. Um, and that's also true of, you know, kind of affecting legislative processes and funding uh, for services in the community. So, um, you know, I was really lucky to come up in graduate school at a time when, uh, you know, I had mentors uh, who were focused on Asian American mental health who could really, you know, give me the best training in uh, moving the science forward, Um, but there was really you know, a core mission of, of that training for us. Um, so, uh, lucky to have been in the right place at the right time.
1: Um, so you just mentioned kind of progressing the science aspect of it and then Mm. the practice part of it as well. Um, I was wondering just as someone who's not too familiar with either area, just if Mm -hmm. you can expand on kind of, um, the gap between the two and, um, what's kind of being done in in those areas.
2: The gap between between uh, science science and science practice, and practice. Yeah. yeah. So that's another huge way to describe what implementation science is. Mm-hmm. So, right, we have you know probably six hundred different treatment programs that we know to be effective for children's mental health problems, and how many of them are being used in the community? Very few, um, by very small number of providers so the science to practice gap is often described in that way of like how do we move products from science into community practice um and sometimes uh i think in the you know uh, a lot of the time the way researchers think about that is gosh why don't all these people in the community just smarten up and do the science-based treatments you know because here we've built all these great shiny things and nobody's using it um, and I think that's a wrong-headed way to think about um, that gap. And we really need to think about what what are we doing to make science accessible to people who are doing the hard work on the ground, and make sure that the science we're doing is they see as relevant to what their needs are and in their hard work every day with children and families. So I think we're moving and trying to shift that. From you know, um, you know, we used to use words like knowledge transfer, like taking knowledge from science and like giving it to like receptive passicles, people, uh, yeah, uh, people, people doing this work in the community, um, and now we have to think much more about building our treatments, building our ways of supporting um, community providers. Uh, in learning and carrying out these treatments in ways that fit their workplaces and faces, uh, in ways that fit their communities, um, and so we're really talking about knowledge exchange. So we talk about like moving in evidence-based practices, but what about practice-based evidence? What do we know about what are all the things that go wrong when someone tries to adopt a research or developed intervention in the community? Um, so. So yeah, I think the science to practice gap is really complicated, and we're just scratching the surface of how to bridge it.
0: Has this conversation translated at all into your role as a professor, mm-hmm. um, teaching the science, teaching the the background knowledge behind it, but also teaching the next generation of right. potentially clinical psychologists how to do how to practically practically implement this?
2: Yeah, yeah, no, I think that this is a growing understanding in clinical psychology is that it's not enough to produce these science-based products. It's, you can't design those things without regard to the environments where they have to be used to help actual people. So I think that there has been a real shift over time. And, um, you know, it's a new model of training, uh, intervention developers um, and really what it is, is shifting it so that you always have to think about who your end user is. So like from, you know, in tech, we think about user centered design all the time. And these kinds of principles are really starting to move mental health innovation forward too. like, you really need to understand very well context in which the people who are actually doing that day-to-day hard work what is it they they need what can they implement um, what do they find um, helpful for their families and what what are they just going to ignore because it's not going to be feasible or acceptable so i think that's a growing shift and i'm really glad to see it
1: Um, so kind of related to the note uh, um, with you being a professor i think especially on this college campus and i'm sure on many others mental health has been a very um a large focus in recent years Mm -hmm. i think there's been a lot Mm -hmm. of attention and resources dedicated uh dedicated to it i believe um i was just wondering if you could kind of speak to that um just as a professor and as a psychologist just kind of this added attention especially um on i mean i'm most familiar with it on college campuses but i'm sure it's expanded to to other um environments as well. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. I think um, people talk about it a lot with young people in general, whether Mm -hmm. they're young adults in college or, you know, middle high school students, K through 12 students, this, this feeling and some supporting data that levels of mental health distress and problems in living are really on the increase. Things like, you know, increases in suicide attempts, um, and all sorts of, you know, anxiety disorders and things like that. So it, I know that on most college campuses, capacity to serve the levels of need on colleges campuses is, is, is really not matching um, uh, out there. And I think I spoke with a student earlier talking about um, uh, here at the Claremont Colleges, the Student Psychological Services, you know, they're capitated at eight sessions something like that a year, which is a very common thing, um, because of these capacity issues. Uh, so, you know, I think someone at a higher pay grade than mine will have to sort of unpack, like, why is this happening? Um, but you know, I, I would not be surprised if it really had to do with all these demands on young people and, you know, a lot of, um, pressures, uh, Around achievement. Um, I think trying to even get into university as a high school student in California is really, really hard. Um, and, and I think that that contributes to a lot of these concerns about wellness. But um, yeah, I think if we did stop to think about what those determinants were that were making, you know, what are the conditions that are leading to this rise? Um, and working on the prevention and wellness side from a more sort of universal way, I think we would see a lot of returns on that, those types of investments instead of thinking, well, you know, by the time they get to college, there's, there's high levels of vulnerability. And so we need to give them more counseling when they get to college that seems like only going to be a Band-Aid um, because, again, we're kind of shifting responsibility uh, to – educational institutions when you know primarily I think we want to educate people and um, but yeah I think we have to address you know what are the root causes earlier
0: no definitely Um, unfortunately we only have time for one more question Mm -hmm. I'm just very interested to to learn more about what drew you to psychology the work you do is so important Mm -hmm. Um, how did you know psychology was the right field for you field for you especially as Many of our listeners would be college students trying to explore that same kind of pathway.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I, I feel like a lot of students do find psychology inherently interesting. Um, and I was among those students. And in terms of what led me to kind of keep pursuing it, um, I think sometimes people will deride uh, researchers or students for wanting to do me-search, right? Like that seems like a shallow like reason <laughs> to want to pursue something to sort of because you're You know really interested in unpacking and understanding maybe some of your own experiences but that really has been true for me um and and frankly i think that's that's okay i don't think people should feel shy about um being inspired to solve problems they've seen in their everyday lives so um you know for me it's really was about trying to understand how was all this stuff I was studying in psychology classes how did that generalize across you know cultural groups and and historical contexts and socioeconomic um, you know divides and I was really interested in what the limits of our knowledge were um, and that really you know not finding what I was looking for when I was doing a literature review, I think it was always really motivating um, to me. So, you know, I think that um, listening to that, like if your experiences are not represented in the body of knowledge in whatever field you are, you know, really letting that fuel your, your, your pursuits.
1: So unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Um, Thank you, Dr. Lau, for joining us. And to all our listeners, remember to stay hungry.